This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. On this episode, I have L.L. McKinning, whose debut release, A Blade So Black, comes out on September the 25th. And here in this talk with McKinney, you'll get a clear sense of not only the inspiration that went into this book, but also her overall inspiration and her journey uh, to getting A Blade So Black out into the hands of readers. So listen in. So, LL, what book hooked you? I am um, going to have to say that one of the earliest books that I can remember reading that uh, hooked me for urban fantasy particularly, or uh, I guess contemporary fantasy dealing with fairies and, you know, other worlds, mm-hmm. um, it was Artemis Fowl. Um, and that's the earliest that I can remember where I thought, I want to do this. Mm. This is what I want to do. I want to make these kinds of stories. Um, there are other books, because I'll get the question a lot, what's your favorite book of all time? It's like, I, it depends on how I'm feeling when you ask me. Sure. Um, if I'm feeling particularly uh, in a contemporary mood, it'll be different. If I'm in a um, science fiction swing, because maybe I went and saw the latest uh, Star Trek or something, then it'll be different. Uh, so I don't have one book that's my all-time favorite, but I can remember the very first time I thought I want to do books for the rest of my life, both ends, writing them and reading them, was Artemis Fowl. And what age were you or what time of your life was this when you came to this book? Oh, man. Um, I was, I believe I was in middle school uh, for the first Artemis Fowl book. Um, I remember if if it wasn't middle school, it was very early high school. Um back when I decided, yo, I'm going to write books. Like, that's the career that I'm going to take. Um, And, of course, in high school, um, that's when you're told, you know, since you have to figure out the rest of your life by 18, so you can then take those steps for college through age, you know, like 22. Um, Books aren't a thing you can do. You need to be a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer, you know. Um, So... I sort of got tapped down a little bit uh, by an English teacher of all people. But um, it it had to be middle school or freshman year of high school. And I say either because my high school, you started in eighth grade. So it Mm -hmm. could have been either one. And so before this time, uh, were you a frequent reader, uh, an avid reader? Or was this kind of really the first time you really got connected and hooked on uh, reading a lot? Oh no, I um I read ravenously as a child. Um and I usually read higher much, much higher than um quote unquote reading level. Um I would be reading adult books, but it was always, you know, for fun. This is what I did to escape. Um this is what I did to sort of uh, entertain myself. Uh, because there were great like kid shows, but none of them really held my attention mm-hmm. until we got into like Power Rangers 
And that held my attention just because I'd never seen anything like Mm -hmm. that before or heard of anything like that before, you know. Um, But I've always been a huge reader. Um, I can't really remember my first book um, or the first book where I was like, I love books. It's That's just always been in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother would tell this story very proudly of how I was reading this particular little book around age two or three. And I'm like, I could talk then, but the way she <laughs> tells it, the way my mother tells it, yes, that's what I was doing. So I, I just go with it. I believe them. Um, so yeah, it, it's just been for forever. And so with you know, growing up with books and and always, you know, reading through books. What was it about Artemis Fowl that that was really sort of a a spark for you when it came to uh, kind of figuring out what did you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Because I I would read books, you know, um, like vampire books. I remember reading Interview with a Vampire very early on. Um, I think that was also freshman year in high school, um, and those books were about this is a secret world and occasionally humans will find out about it and no one cares if they do. Um, But with Artemis Fowl, it was humans very often find out about this and there's this, um, this division of fairies who it's their job to do something about it when that happens. So it, it was one of the first books where I remembered where interaction between the fantastical and the everyday mundane was a regular occurrence. Mm-hmm. So much so that there were systems in place to deal with that. And that was just the most fascinating thing to me because in reading like Tolkien, well, you're in that world and that's the world that you in and there you are. Um, or in reading, even in reading the first Harry Potter book, like, yeah, it was separate from the muggle world. And there were systems in place to sort of like guide muggles away. But the story itself encompassed being in the wizarding world. There was very rarely any interaction with the muggle world outside of the fact that, you know, we're on planet Earth or in London or walking through a wall at King's Cross, you know. Um, where with Artemis Fowl, like, the protagonist was a human who spent a lot of his time dealing with this fantastical element and these creatures in this world um, because he found out about them and managed to get around their systems. Like, he, this kid is beating out these thousand-year-old systems because they have something he wants and he's going to go get it. And so with that kind of spark, this inspiration from Artemis Fowl, you decide you want to uh, write books someday of your own. Did you start writing right away? And if so, what were those stories like? Kind of yes and kind of no. Um, I started writing stories, sort of practicing with fan fiction um, as a kid, because again, as this as I'm developing, this is what I want to do. Like right within that first year or two, I had an English teacher who got me in trouble with my parents because I would finish assignments early just so I could spend the time writing because at home I had siblings and, you know, we had chores and we played with each other and there was very little me, myself and I time and space. Mm -hmm. 
because two of us shared a bedroom, you know. Um, so there was nowhere I could go that was just me. Well, at school, when everybody's doing work or taking a test, I'm at mm-hmm. my desk and it's quiet and I can think, you know. So I would finish my work really quickly and would spend the last half hour, 45 minutes writing. And even though I was still passing uh, tests and turning in work and getting good grades, my teacher said I was distracted, um, which I guess technically, yes, but if we're not doing anything anyway, what am I distracted from? Um, So she, like looking back on it, she really blew it out of proportion to Mm -hmm. the point that, you know, it concerned my parents. Um, And so I wasn't allowed to write in her class anymore. And, you know, just having that adult authority figure do this, you know, turn writing into something you could be punished for. I didn't write again um, for a while. Um, So I slipped into fan fiction. And so I would write for like Sailor Moon, which I'm still a huge fan of to this day. Um, Other TV shows like Power Rangers, the very first novel I attempted, which was pretty much a big Power Ranger fan fiction, now that I think back on it, was about these people in space who had powers and could transform into different colors to fight monsters. You know, I'm, I was like 13. I didn't know what fan fiction was at the time. I just thought, you know, I like Power Rangers. I'll write something like that. And so I wrote this, oh man, it's still... My grandmother still has it in a folder somewhere at her house. Um, But it was about 200, almost 300 pages. And that was my first attempt at a novel. And after that, I didn't write another novel till maybe 10 years later when I was, you know, early 20s. um, Because I didn't get it back in my head that this was a thing that you could do after having that run in with that teacher for a good 10 years. Wow. So in, as you kind of further, uh, as you go further along in the high school, were there other important books uh, that stand out to you as you think back that, that as you look at who you are as a writer today uh, were really informative uh, and really left an impression on you? Oh yes. Um, I, during high school, Aside from Harry Potter, one series that I was really into was Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. Um, I greatly adored those books, up until one in particular that will remain nameless. Um, And I just, I really enjoyed Louis, who was my favorite from the start. And then I got into Lestat, and I've always kind of liked Louis a little bit more than Lestat, even though Lestat's like everybody's favorite. Um, He's awesome, but I like Louis a little bit more. And so, you know, uh, reading those books, I read some other ones of hers. Um, That in turn turned me on to like the Dragonlance series, and then I went off into high fantasy. But I, I distinctly remember spending a lot of time in Anne Rice's books, particularly the Vampire Chronicle series. What made you then come back to writing? Was it an event? Was it a book? What inspiration really brought you back? Well, I've always kind of held on to that. Maybe this could be a thing. Um, You know, 
even if I don't do anything with it, I would one day like to finish a book. Because even that 300-page thing that I wrote as a kid, I never, like, got to the end. It just kept going. Because I had no concept of, you know, three arcs, sure. uh, three-act story structure or anything like that. Um, but I, I think I was maybe a sophomore in college. YA was starting to be this thing or at least starting to gain its feet to become the monstrosity that it is now. Sure. And I remember trying to read the first Twilight book. I didn't finish that one. Um, but, I mean, it still has affected the zeitgeist in the world sure. in great ways, mm-hmm. like huge ways. Um, and I remember there was a book that I read uh, that will remain nameless, that I was reading it, and as I'm reading it, I remember my face just sort of scrunching up, like this is published. Not only this is published, this is a bestseller. Not only is it a bestseller, it's a best-selling series. And so I'm looking at this just from like a technical standpoint. Um, and I said in my head, okay, if this person can do it, I know I can do it. Like, there's no doubt in my life. If, if this person can do it, I, I definitely can. So that's kind of what sparked it, was reading a book that um, I didn't feel was very well written. I felt that the story had amazing potential, um, but just, like, the overall craft, because, you know, I'm in college and... I'm going, you know, having to turn in papers and, you know, grammar and syntax, blah, 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 all these rules being beaten into you. And it just didn't gel at all. And so I was like, I can at least follow the rules. You know, I, I can do this. So that, that's, that's what got me back into it was um, seeing what I felt was a book that... I don't. I couldn't tell you why to this day. It was what it was, and it was, and good on that author, you know. But that—that's in truth, not knowing anything about publishing, not knowing how any of it works. As a reader, I read that and was like, I can do that. Hmm. So, with that sort of motivation, uh, where did you kind of start? Did you just start typing away? Did you have an idea or? You know, did you research? What was your kind of your next move after that? The very first book that I wrote to completion um, was one that I had had sort of bouncing around in my head for years. Like as a kid, I read the Book of Revelations, and you know that's when the end of the world comes about, and I guess is uh, Armageddon and Apocalypse and all that. But I was a kid, and I was like, you mean there's going to be dragons? This is awesome. You know, I mean, I didn't, that, that's just what's going through my head. Right. And so, like, I read it, and all of these things are happening, and, like, leviathans are showing up, and, you know, great um, angels and battles. And this is, like, the coolest thing possible for my fi- uh, science fiction fantasy-loving brain. Um And so I start baking in my head this idea of, you know, well, what would that look like? Who would lead what side? So forth and so on. 
So I start writing on that where there's this idea that uh, the seven deadly sins are humanoid. You know, they could take human form. And for whatever reason, I didn't know what the reason was in the beginning. I do now, having written the book. Um, they have decided to come topside for the first time in a couple thousand years um, because something's about to go down. And so that's the first book that I wrote was because I had this sort of idea germinating and um, no idea what I was going to do with it other than, you know, sitting down. Okay, what do we do? Well, I'm from Kansas City. Let's set the book in Kansas City. I know Kansas City. Where's a good place for something like this to kick off? Nightclub. So that's kind of how that started. And I just kept going and going and going. And then 90,000 words later, I'm like, I'm nowhere near the end of this. It's just going to have to be a series. So I wrapped it up. And uh, that was the first book that I wrote intending to try and get it published. And so once you have it done, were you at the same time sort of looking into what's the process of getting published, get, you know, talking to agents, getting an agent, or were you, did you wrap it up and then kind of move on to that step? As I was writing it, I was researching, you know, what do you do next? Um, and there wasn't nearly half as much available online as there is now to tell you what you need to do next. So it was kind of like pulling teeth a little bit. It was excruciating trying to figure this out. Um, but one thing I did figure out was I can't do this by myself. I need critique partners. So I'm like, okay, and I need to find critique partners. Cool, cool, cool. How do you find critique partners? So there was like, I did this thing where you could go online and give up you know, this is an email address that I created just for this. This is kind of the story that I'm writing. Do you want to stop stories? It was kind of like a, I don't know, like a Craigslist for critique mm -hmm. partners. Uh, that didn't really go anywhere. But then I found out about this place in Kansas City called the Writer's House. And um, I guess it's just this old mansion that was uh, refurbished and it's used as sort of this touchstone for authors and writers and poets throughout the city. Uh, they have events there every now and then. So they were having like a mixer. And I was like, well, I don't know any other writers. Little did I know there's tons of us around here. I'm friends with a number of them um, now. But so I, I go to, to this, this event and I'm there. I don't know anybody. The room is kind of full. There's pizza. And so I meet eyes with this woman across the room. And we just sort of catch sight of each other. And both of us could tell the other ones, like, you know, our introverted selves are having mild panic attacks. And so we just sort of gravitate towards each other and we strike up a conversation. And so she introduces me to her friends. And that winds up being a writer's group that I've been a part of for the better part of nine years now. Um, and they've been with me from that very first story. I wasn't even finished with it. Um, when I found them and they had been at this for at least five, seven years before I joined up. Um, so, and they, you know, had been researching and had gone, you know, got an MFA, all of this other stuff, been going to conferences, knew what a query letter was, stuff like that. So they really helped show me what the next steps are. But before you take those next steps, we've got to polish this thing. So that's sort of how I found my peoples um, 
that helped me become the writer that I am. Because not only did they critique my stuff, but uh, offered me opportunities to offer critique as well. And you learn just as much, if not more, from critiquing other people's things than you do from having somebody look over yours. Um, so that's how I met them. And that's when, this was, I think, 2010, maybe, 2009, 2010. Maybe a little bit beforehand. If I'm, yeah, no, 2007, it was a while ago. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a good minute ago. And so um, they show me the ropes, and that's when I start sending out my very first query letter ever, which was on a completely different, like four laptops ago, so I don't even have it anymore. <laughs> and I'm kind of thankful for that because it was awful. Oh, it was, it was so bad. Um, and so that's why, like, if people are like, what querying, uh, you know, advice can you give us? I was like, okay, so you're going to write your query letter and you're going to get it done and you're going to have people look at it, you know, friends who you're all getting started at the same time and you're going to think it's amazing. No, you've got three more drafts to go because I promise you it's, it's not as good as you think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking from experience, it just, because it, it has no way to be because you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. So that that was my foray into I've got this book. I'm almost done. I'm not quite there. I don't need I don't know the next steps. Let me find somebody who does. And so can you imagine uh, even ever being able to get published if it hadn't been uh, for that group and the time you spent with them and what you've learned through that group? Absolutely not. Um, unless I somehow came across another group of people who were as amazing and patient and kind and, you know, just took care of me Mm -hmm. um, in that way. Because there are, I had tried a writer's group beforehand and it was a little bit larger writer's group. The writer's group that I wound up joining, there was four of us total, uh, capped out at five um, at the max at one point, down to three now. Um, just because, you know, people move away. Um, but there was another group that I was, I tried for a few months beforehand and there's this guy in this group. I don't even know if this was his real name, but his name was Sergio and Uh he came to group like in a black turtleneck with a beret and a scarf. It was just like looking back on it, it's like, this is this is that guy in your MFA <laughs> who apparently thinks he's going to be like the next Mark Twain. Sure. But instead of like writing, he's busy critiquing everybody else's stuff. Right. So, you know, he, it, it was very brutal. It was unkind. And it was very much aimed at the authors as opposed to, you know, the work. <laughs> and there was, I remember one time, uh, the very last meeting that I went to, I was like, okay, I'm done with that was where I was, this book, the same one with The Seven Deadly Sins, you know, he was critiquing it, and I I don't know what it was, but I stood up against something that he said, which started, like, this roundtable of people chiming in, like, well, yeah, she did this right, and she did this right, and no, you're wrong. Like, I guess he was sort of the, the pack leader, and, and me sort of being like, well, no, I'm not going to listen to that, 
sort of spurred on other people in the group who I guess have been waiting for a while to be able to say anything to him. You know, I was new, so I didn't care whether or not he liked me. Um, and I remember him saying, well, if you're okay with writing commercial stuff like this, then by all means, go ahead. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm okay with writing what do you obviously think is beneath you because he sort of scrunched his nose up and waved his hand and I never went back to that group. Hmm. I was fortunate in, even for being in this as early as I was, that whatever it was that saw his crap for what it was instead of taking it to heart allowed me to find that next group. Sure. Um, and without them, no, I, I absolutely would not be here um, because... They have been there through 250 plus rejections. Like mm-hmm. they were there, like we went to conferences together. We cried together. We celebrated together. We still cry and celebrate together. Um, I talked to them pretty much weekly. Um, we meet each other for dinner regularly. You know, we have Christmas get togethers and exchange gifts. Um, these women are family to me. And it absolutely would not have happened without them. That's great. And so uh, after the group and after these rejections, we finally uh, get uh, to the book uh, that all this hard work and time uh, went into. Uh, so your debut, A Blade So Black, comes out on uh, the 25th of September. So starting to talk about this book, give me kind of the synopsis of what the book's about. Well, um, I can boil it down to a single sentence, and it answer it asks the question: What if Buffy fell down the rabbit hole instead of Alice? Uh, swords will shatter, hearts will break, heads will roll. That is the pitch that I have had since the inception of this book. Like it, of all the books that I've written and had to pitch. I've never had a pitch come and like be like perfect. That's it. Don't have to change it. Don't have to alter it. That that is the book, um, which told me early on that I might be onto something here. If I there's nothing I have to change about that. Um, even in pitching contests and query letters, that pitch always got attention. That you know, I mean, there were times that my manuscript numerous times didn't uh, manage to maintain that attention, but that pitch that would get it. Um, So that is, that is a blade for black in just a few sentences. And so when, when you had that idea, was it something where it was just the pitch and there really wasn't anything more than just that pitch, that idea, or did it kind of fall in line pretty quickly for you as far as, all right, this is the story. This is, you know, kind of the beats and how it will go. Did it kind of come fully formed or you had that spark and then it, you had to kind of mull it over and talk it out and write it out before you had the story. The pitch came very early on. Um, I remember the idea for the story coming. I was sitting on my mom's couch um, in her living room. I was watching supernatural reruns and one of the Winchester boys, they were hunting vampires and I think it was Dean, but I could be wrong. Uh, one of them made just an offhand Buffy comment. And earlier on that day, I had read somewhere on the internet that they were, they had announced that they were going to be doing a live action Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after reading that 
uh, hey, we're going to do Alice in Wonderland live action, it had sort of tapped to the back of my head, oh, I wonder what that's going to be like. Hmm. And it wasn't until I'm watching Supernatural and watching them, you know, kill vampires and make this Buffy reference where I'm like, maybe that's what it looks like, uh, a live action Wonderland. Like, I, I don't imagine that they mm-hmm. would, you know, just... Because it was, you know, it was, uh, it was still Disney, so they're probably obviously going to like kind of play off of the sure. Disney one a little bit. But um, what story could they possibly have to tell about Wonderland again? You know, um, like maybe this is a possibility. Maybe she goes and she fights something in Wonderland. Because um, I think they said it was going to be a little bit um, darker than the original because she was grown or something like that, which is what it turned out to be. And so I was like, okay. That's pretty awesome. So I went and I wrote a fight scene. And I liked it. And so I kept going. And it wasn't a little bit into it where I was like, I think this could be a whole book. Um, Because I didn't start off with, you know, any plot or anything like that. It was just, wouldn't it be cool if? And so I just sort of ran with it. And the, um, the the pitch formed fairly early on. And even though the story itself has undergone many, many changes um, to the point where we have a whole new antagonist, um, characters that weren't in there are now, and I got rid of some characters, but that pitch has fit every iteration of the story so far. And so when you were first uh, going through and, and mapping out this story, uh, were you kind of weighing how close to stay to that Alice in Wonderland idea as far as characters and interactions and, and things like that? Or uh, did you, were you kind of drawn towards new characters that you created or how, because that was kind of the inspiration, how much did you feel like you had to stick with it to kind of stay with that pitch, that initial idea? Well, with having Alice first, and she's um, a modern-day girl, you know, and so I'm like, okay, so if she's running around, I didn't know it was set in Atlanta at the time, but if she's running around in a city, what does everybody else look like? And so my next uh, next character I tackled was the Mad Hatter. I was like, well, what does he look like in a contemporary setting? Because you can't, you know, I mean, I guess you could run around serving tea to everybody, but I don't want him to, you know, be the usual character, the same character that pops up in every single iteration. I want, obviously, to, you know, do a nod to that character so that people will recognize the original in him. But I want to do something different. So what's different than tea? Maybe a cafe? No, 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 that's still close to tea. Bar! He'll run a bar. And so I came up with the Looking Glass Pub um, mm-hmm. which was the third thing that happened. And so I was like, okay, so if he's in this bar and he's running this bar, what does it have to do to, with Wonderland? And that's where I came up with the idea that Wonderland's a real place. And they go back and forth between our world and Wonderland regularly. Not just, you know, a one-time deal and maybe it happens again years later. No, this is, you know, after school, this is what she does. So the bar was built around this gateway into Wonderland, and that's his job. Is He's there to keep an eye on it and to train people to help protect it and serve 
really great rum and coke. Like that, that is what he does. <laughs> um, and so from there, I was like, okay, well, the other characters, you know, at least the ones that people recognize, even if they haven't read the original, you know, have to be present. And then there are characters who need to be present with him. So I say, well, what's one character that can help him run the bar? And so that's when I came up with Madeline or Maddie, who is uh, a sleepy bartender. She naps a lot, usually on the bar, um, but she makes really good cocktails still. And so it sort of went like that. It's like these characters are here in this world, or maybe they're not. Maybe they're still in Wonderland, but it's the times have changed and they've adapted with it. What do they look like? What do they do? So that, that's kind of, I went in more character-based sure. than story-based from the original because I didn't want to follow the same beats of her going in and getting lost and having to answer riddles and so forth and so on. Um, so most of the parallels are with the characters. Like the Tweedledum and Tweedledee aren't even from Wonderland. Um, they are also uh, guardians, dreamwalkers like her. And uh, they're from Russia and they're the Tweedlanov twins. <laughs> And um, so one of them is named Dimitri and one of them is named Demarcus and they go by D and Dim and that's who they are, you know. And so I, with making these characters completely human, I can't necessarily follow Alice's story if Tweedledum and Tweedledee aren't there in that capacity. But they are very much guardians and, you know, they sort of show her the ropes because uh, they've been at this for longer than she has. So it, it kind of almost is adjacent to it as opposed to, you know, matching it up beat by beat. And so you kind of alluded to and said that, you know, you joined that group nine years ago and, and had all these rejections. So have you ever count counted out how many uh, books you tried to query before this one? I have queried. This is the third book um, that I've tried to query. I have written five total um one being the one that i didn't even know was fan fiction when i was like 11 12 yes i'm definitely counting that because getting down that many words uh, is a sure. feat i would sure. say um even if i didn't finish it i, I don't think i would ever finish it because i was just writing aimlessly with no plot in mind just what i thought was cool what happened next but um i it's the third book that i queried um i had success with the first book that i queried um, but then that agent left the business. And so I went back out and we had been on submission with that book. And, you know, so one of the things was, well, once you go on submission with a book, you can't really go on submission with it again because it's already been out there, you know. So there was no point in querying that book. Um, so I wrote a second one and I queried it and um, got... A lot of great responses. People really enjoyed it. People liked it, but weren't in love with it. They loved it, but didn't think that they could sell it, you know, so forth and so on. And so as I'm querying the second book, I'm writing Alice. And if I hadn't written those first two, I wouldn't have been able to write with Alice. I wouldn't have been able to start with Alice. And I know that if I had started with Alice she wouldn't be what she is now. Um, she probably wouldn't even be that good because I get better with every manuscript uh, that I write. So um, Alice definitely benefits from having been forced 
in a way to write those other two because you can't stop. Um, so she's she's the third book that I've uh, queried um, with the intent that I've written with the intent to query to be published. And was there a lot of discouragement in, uh, you know, those missteps or those coming so close, but yet not close enough? And if so, how did you kind of continue on uh, and, you know, following your dream uh, where, you know, a lot of people may have just kind of given up or just say, you know, it's not, I guess, meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I kept, I always kept writing. I was like, you know, after writing the story and polishing it up and I would do tweaks here and there, you know, if I'm getting rejections based off of the query, like nobody is making requests, then something's wrong with the query. Let me work on the query. If I'm getting requests for fools repeatedly, then there's something in the manuscript. Let me go see that, you know? Um, but I was always while editing or, you know, fidgeting with the one that was out there, I was always working on the next thing. And, um, my group kept me going. Um, I prayed a lot. Um, I still do, because uh, rejection does not stop. Mm -hmm. um, but I held fast to what I felt I was here to do. Because, um, again, books have been such an integral part of my life, so much so that I don't have, like I said, the favorites depend on what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Just books are the favorite reading is the thing um writing is the thing there's no one it just encompasses all um so uh, you know I, I felt that that's what i'm good at that's you know everybody has their calling or whatever the cliche is this is mine um and so i held um on to like a sort of faith in that sure that if this is what I'm supposed to do, then it's just a matter of time, which turned out that's kind of what it was right. because the agent that took Alice wasn't even an agent when I wrote the other two books. Hmm. And the editor that bought Alice wasn't even an editor when I came on with that agent. So the people who needed to be in place for a Blades of Black to be what it is today were still off becoming whatever greatness they had to become while I was doing this. So it, it was a matter of things, you know, lining up. And my, um, you know, faith and prayer was a big part of keeping me going, along with, like I said, my, the other writers that I knew, um, my writers group, we just, we would encourage each other, you know, and we would give each other time to be upset about it. Sure. You know, like, you got this rejection, um, you get two weeks. You get two weeks to be upset about it, cry about it, be angry about it, you know, whatever you want to do. You get two weeks and then we're back on it. We need more pages. We're going to find out, you know, what what did this rejection say? Was it just a basic rejection? Well, you don't have any feedback that you can use on that one. Okay, well, let's move on to the next one. Did they give you, did this rejection give you a pointer? Was it pacing? Was it dialogue? You know, like, did they offer anything that we can maybe go in and fix? And so... Um, once we started getting those letters or rejections that said, I, it's, it's great. The voice is amazing. It just didn't click with me. That was like, okay, so I know I'm close. I know I have a good story. I know I have something that people will want to read. I just have to find the person 
willing to go into battle with me for this. Because that agent would wind up getting rejections as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So somebody willing to be rejected alongside with me, that, that was the piece of the puzzle that was missing. I had the story. It was a good story, you know. Um, even with the rejections that were coming in, there's some of the nicest rejections I've ever seen and received in my life. Um, and so in a way, the rejections themselves were also kind of encouraging. Sure. Because they're saying, I, keep, I, I kept hearing, not me, but maybe the next one. Mm-hmm. not me but maybe the next one and so every no would bring me closer to my yes um because every time that you know i exhausted whatever list of agents that i had researched and looked at and figured out would be a match well now there are new agents or maybe there's an agent who wasn't you know didn't have much of an online presence before and now they do you know so um that a lot it was that mix of faith my group and just you know, feeling that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Sure. So it's got to happen at some point, you know, and I can't, if I stop, then it doesn't happen at all. So that that's kind of what kept me going with that. And that's great. And was there, when you think back to the nine, 10 years uh, that you were kind of writing and working things out with people, were there books that when you think over that time period that motivated you, inspired you, uh, that as a writer, that uh, you really kind of hung them up as as books that you wanted to work towards to be like, maybe not in subject matter, but just quality, maybe? Oh, yeah. Um, right during that is when I got into Octavia Butler, um, who, phenomenal science fiction author. Um, and I revisited some old loves, like... Um, like Lord of the Rings. I mean, cause the movies were coming out, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, we'll go, go back and reread those. Um, then the last three Harry Potter books were coming out. Cause you know, they got to the fourth one and then stopped for mm-hmm. whatever wacky reason. Um, then there was, um, I, at that time I was also getting storytelling from different avenues. Um, cause I, I started, I went to, before I started taking writing seriously, I went to school for digital art and game design. Hmm. And so I was like, well, if I can't write books, I'm going to make video games. Because that, that's the thing that people get paid like nine to five day job sure. to do. You make video games, you do the thing, people buy them, rinse and repeat, you know. And so I played a lot of video games, mostly like RPGs, um, the role player games where it's storyline based. As opposed to, you know, beat Bowser in this castle. And I love Mario. Like, Mario's the goat. But there wasn't very much story there. So I would play, like, the Zelda games and um, games like Dragon Age, you know, or Warcraft, or World of Warcraft. The ones that had lore and background information and stories. And it that's kind of how I held on to... Um, writing a little bit when I wasn't. So it wasn't just books, even though books were always there. Um, and in reading like more of, like I said, more of Anne Rice's books, even though I drifted away from the Vampire Chronicle series, I still read some of her other stuff. Um, and then there were authors that I would read and it would be a one-off, but the book stuck with me. I can't remember what the name of the author was, but it was just, I don't even know what the cover looks like because 
it didn't have a jacket. It was just this plain white book. And the spine, I think I got it at like a half price bookstore or maybe at a um, a garage sale. But it said something about being a wizard. And I was like, huh. And so I read it. And these kids figure out how to be wizards. But one of them is like a technology wizard. Like he can talk to machines and make them do stuff. And the other one's a nature wizard. And they have to somehow uh, fight off this evil entity that's coming to take over their city. And I, for the life of me, like that book is still here somewhere amidst the stacks. But I didn't find anything else by that author. Um, And that's one book that stuck with me. So there were a lot of instances of that as well. Um, Because again, I'm, I love books and stories. It, It doesn't have to be you know, uh, Twilight series or the Divergent series or the Hunger Games series, as much as I love the Hunger Games series, which is one that I also read. Um, but if I happen to pick a book up and I can get through the first five pages, chances are I'm going to, you know, dive into it. So there was a lot of that where I, I was looking for what wasn't necessarily popular because I was that kid. Well, oh, everybody else likes it. I don't. I was so <laughs> obtuse um, during my late teenage years early college years, which is when I decided to pick up writing again. Um, So it was video games and that storytelling mode. And then, you know, movies also filled in that void because I sort of backed away from books overall um, a little bit for a little bit there, maybe like a three to four year period because it was just hurtful to think about a little bit. Sure. Well, a few questions sort of as we kind of wind things down. The first one is, what is your favorite movie uh, that's based on a book? I'm not going to answer with any of the Harry Potters. I'm not going to answer with the Hunger Games, even though I greatly enjoy those. Uh, Right now, my favorite book is To All the Boys I've Loved Before, (laughs) um, which is on Netflix. And it just released earlier this month. And I'm not a rom-com girl, but that movie is so stinking cute. Um, And so... Um, it made me go read the books and now I'm in love with it all. <laughs> um, so that one kind of worked backwards where I saw the movie sure. first because I wanted to, you know, support the movie as by right. author of color. Um, and then I went and got the books and, but before that one, one movie that I go back to all the time is the interview with the vampire movie. Um, Tom Cruise will always be my Lestat in my heart <laughs> even though he's been redone a couple times and I guess they're going to redo him again in another movie, which fine, whatever. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's, that, that's a movie that I, I return to quite often. That's based on a book. And then the next question being, is there a book or a series of books that you're willing to admit that you either never read or never finished? Aside from Twilight, which I said earlier, I, I got a be, almost 100 pages into it and I couldn't anymore. Um, not knocking people who do like Twilight. I mean, by all means, just because I don't like it doesn't mean you shouldn't sure. like it. You know, love what you love, do what you do. <laughs> There's stuff that I enjoy that some people look at me like, what? That? So I get it. Um, but another book that I'm willing to admit that I didn't get into because uh, the author is doing fine is I couldn't finish Divergent. Um, and what's, what's really funny is someone had just gotten like their eye gouged out with a spoon <laughs> and it wasn't that like I was grossed out or anything. I was like, 
nothing's really happening. After somebody had just been like physically dismembered, I'm, I'm a little bit bored. So that's when I knew I was like, I don't think I can do this. Um, and I'm gonna throw one last one in there. I didn't do Mockingjay because I loved Hunger Games. And then I read Catching Fire. And for me, it felt like Hunger Games 1.5. Sure, yeah. It, it felt like I was being given the same book again, but only repackaged with new people who, now these new people get to die. <laughs> right, um, exactly. You know, in different, but still kind of the same ways. And so I felt cheated a little bit. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm not reading the third one. I, you got me once, right. you know, fool me once. You shame on, you know, you, but you're not going to get me again. Right. Uh, but then the people are like, but the third one is so good. So maybe at some point, you know, I'll, I'll be able to be like, all right, I'll give it a try. I forgive you. I'll do it. But yeah, even to this day, I'm still a little salty about it. Yeah. I, feel, I feel a little bit deceived. Uh, what is the last great book that you've read? The last book that I just finished reading, and technically I didn't finish reading it, I finished listening to it, was Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. And I know I'm very late to this game because uh, she finished that duology and she's on to another book in the Grisha world. Um, but I was physically reading the first one for the first time. It, I'm three years late, it's fine. But I'm sitting at work and I'm on my lunch break and I'm you know out on the couches and I'm reading it and a girl walks up to me and she goes, oh my God, I love those books. I was so sad when such and such died. In my face <laughs> as I'm reading this book. Oh, and man. I think I gave her like the deathiest death glare because she scurried away really quickly with like an apology. And so I couldn't read it anymore after that. Like I couldn't physically without being enraged. But after I complained on Twitter, which I am wont to do, um, a bunch of people were like, oh, no, that's horrible. But you need to finish it because it's amazing. And, you know, I got you need to finish it almost as much, if not more than oh, no, that's horrible. So I was like, okay, well, I can't read it. I can at least listen to it, you know, while I'm going back and forth to work. So I got the audio book, and I finished listening to it, and I'm very glad that I did, even though I know what's coming for me in the <laughs> next one. Um, I'm still invested enough in the story overall because it's just really well done, um, especially with that many characters being in that many heads, because it's like six points of view for the main characters, and then there's like three one-off points of view, so there's a lot of head-hopping, but not the negative head-hopping. Um, plus, in listening to it, each one of those characters had their own voice actor, so it got to a point where somebody would say, chapter 13, and I'm like, that's Matthias, or that's Kaz. You know, I, I could hear who it was, right. and I was just really excited. So I enjoyed the audiobook a great deal after the physical one had been thoroughly ruined for me. That's great. Well, LL, A Blade So Black comes out on September 25th. I'm very happy for you, very excited for this book, and I wish you and the book all the best. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me on here. It was great to talk about books and my journey and doing what I love. And that does it for another episode of What Book Hooked You. Special thanks to L.L. McKinney for joining me. And her book, A Blade So Black, comes out on September the 25th. So I sincerely hope you'll go and pick it up. I'm Brock Shelley. And until next time, 
keep reading.